This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. Welcome to the What Difference Does It Make podcast. What's going on today? Well, today's a day. How how are you doing? Today's <laughs> a day. Wow. Yes. All right. I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing well. I am doing well. Okay. How are you doing? I'm good because I, over? I forgot. <laughs> well, I, it was five minutes till showtime when I realized, oh my God, I got to prep myself for uh, for our big talk today. Uh, oh, so you have a you have a lot of good info that you called in five minutes. Yeah, exactly. Been planning this episode for a little bit of time. During our talks with many different people, we touch on different topics. And lately, with a number of uh, the, uh, our guests, we've talked about John Lennon because it has been this will be the 40th anniversary of his assassination. And so we thought it would be a good opportunity to to kind of talk about John Lennon. I've been kind of dreading this episode and looking forward to it. And I've been, you know, reading a lot and it kind of brought back a lot of, you know, a lot of memories and having just visited uh, New York a few weeks ago and I stood in front of the Dakota for a little while, tried to get some of my, uh, some John Lennon mojo. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people do that. I do that. Go through strawberry fields and, you know, it's, it's amazing because Yoko still lives there and, you know, that's, I don't know if I, uh, I don't know. It, it's tough to leave a place like the, the Dakota if that's where you're living. Um, but yeah. I would also imagine that that's a uh, tough place to to be at, even 40 yeah. years removed. I, I would think so too, but she obviously stayed there for, you know, for her own reasons. And I didn't realize as I was looking at information about the Dakota, how many celebrity, you know, f- personalities, famous people have lived there over the years and how many were rejected since it's a co-op. There were a bunch rejected by the board. It's pretty amazing, but I guess you can see it. The building does appear to be pretty regal <laughs> on the Upper West Side of New York. Well, spill the beans. Who's not appropriate for the Dakota? <laughs> Surprisingly, Melanie Griffith and Antonio Banderas. Oh, who wants them to, to live there? <laughs> oh, no, that's weird. That, that is strange. Okay, who else? This I wonder what I wonder what the the reasons were. Uh, I do too. It's those boards are uh, tough, from what I understand. Or you know, it's like a college admissions. It is, and I know a co op. You know, I know that they're very particular. So the board rejected them, and the guy who tried to sell his ownership to them expressed his disappointment with the way the building seems to be changing. And uh, he had told, I guess, the New York Times in an interview, what's so shocking is that the building is losing its touch with interesting people. More and more, they're moving away from creative people and going towards people who just have the money. Mm. 
So some of the other personalities, you might be surprised. M- maybe not so much. And, and <laughs> Is yes, this a BuzzFeed thing? You may be surprised. <laughs> Click to follow. <laughs> yes. No, no. Uh, so Gene Simmons was rejected. Billy Joel and Carly Simon. That's, that's odd. I'm su- actually surprised that they took in John Lennon because at the time he was, you know, he was fighting for citizenship. Do you know when they moved in? When did they move into the, the Dakota? From, uh, they moved in 1973. He was given his U.S. resident alien registration green card on the bicentennial of the American Revolution, July 4th, 1976. He was also oh. informed that he would be eligible to apply for U.S. citizenship in 1981. So, they, mm. so there you go. So they did let him into the building without a green card. Yeah. Uh, it says, so Yoko Ono, a Japanese citizen, was granted permanent resident status in 1973 and the couple's son, Sean, is an American citizen, having been born in New York. Mm-hmm. At the time they moved in, he wasn't even a U.S. citizen, and they let him in, which yeah. is crazy yeah, when you I think about it. <laughs> back at the time, if, if you believe you know the, the observation of the guy who tried to sell his apartment to John Lennon and Yoko Ono, they were moving more towards money and less toward, less toward creative types like John Lennon. At the time that Lennon, not John Lennon and Yoko Ono moved in, there were probably a lot more creative people in the building. I guess um, so. And then these creative people ruined everything. Or, <laughs> yes, and I they guess. wanted to go go for the money. Hey, do you know why it was called the Dakota? No. What happened? <laughs> why? <laughs> this, is, this is the stuff that interests me. Yeah. It's funny. You are spiraling. Go <laughs> down the rabbit hole. Go ahead. I did go down the rabbit mm-hmm. hole, yeah. But also because since, since I was just there and I, you know, it, it just... It's such a, I wonder if the building would be as interesting if you didn't know the history of it, but it was really, it's just so, (laughs) so much more depth to it when you're standing there because it, and this was the, the, according to the manager of the building in it, he said it probably, so we don't know for sure. It was called the Dakota because it was so far West and so far North and comparing it to the Dakota Territory because it was considered so remote. And I guess at the time, at Central Park West and 72nd, it was considered sparsely inhabited and remote from the rest of Manhattan, which is crazy to think about now. Right. (laughs) Who would want to live there? It is the Dakotas. It's crazy. That's funny. But anyway, we are talking about John Lennon. (laughs) Yes, we are. We we went to the Dakota, which is significant, obviously, but yes. Well, so where were you? I was 15, as were, well, you were probably 14. And I know that Monday Night Football was on in my house. It was pretty much always on in my house. I can't remember exactly, but I am certain. And, you know, whether I'm conjuring up this vision or is really true, I must have been in my room, (laughs) probably doing homework. I mean, 15, you're in high school, right? High school or? Yeah, I was on the phone. You were. Do you remember who you were talking to? I have no idea who I was talking to, but I remember my dad coming in and and telling me because he was watching Monday Night Football. And I I was just then becoming a big fan of uh, the Beatles. I think I was in my final year in junior high. Yeah. And um, yeah, I had a a good friend that we used to like quiz each other on Beatles trivia. back then so i mean i was it was uh i was just kind of getting into the the fandom because there there is so much to to absorb with the beatles it was weird hearing that but it was also as being a 14 year old guy i didn't take into i didn't really understand what 40 meant it seemed like that was old i i don't know what 40 you know mm-hmm. what that age is you know like that's like oh okay well you know he was 40 
but I, I think, I, you know, Elvis had died at 42. You know, this, I, as I assume that's when, that's when rock stars started dying off was it was at that age. Those are the elderly, right? Yeah. But it was something that, that really affected me. Yeah, but it's even being a fan, as I was also, I was a big Beatles fan. I don't think at that age you're connecting the implication of what just happened with the music that you that is such a big part of your life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because it, maybe it was a little bit less for us at that age about the personalities of the band. I mean, I was, you know, I love them and Paul McCartney, you know, the heartthrob. But I don't know. It It was almost separate. You know, this was a personality that was assassinated, but this was the music you loved. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it is. And as a teenager or just, you know, just mm. super young, you don't really, yeah, as you touched on it, you don't uh, kind of grasp the implications of the global implications of what this whole, what just happened and, you know, yeah. how tragic it is. You start, as you get older, you start thinking about, wow, what if John Lennon was alive? What would he think of the internet or... I would yeah. imagine later, like, I was saying, boy, you know, I bet you Bono and John Lennon would be best friends. And, you know, it's just because Bono suddenly became, you know, started be, to become, you know, like this John Lennon type uh, rock star. Yeah. <laughs> you know, getting socially active and all that. It's a shame that uh, John Lennon's not around because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you would imagine that he would be a part of Live Aid. You know, he would be, he would be a leader of, of uh, you know, social causes and, you know, things that meant a lot to him in the seventies and sixties and, you know, and moved on. So it's, it it is a, it's a, obviously it's a huge tragedy and it was, had social implications. It was just, it was bad. Just a tragedy (laughs) for for a million reasons. Right. You know, I was also thinking about, because we've seen the foot, even if you weren't watching it live, I was thinking about Frank Gifford and Howard Cosell having to talk about this and deciding whether to talk about it. Do you know anything about this? I read a little bit about it. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure it was a discussion whether it was appropriate or not. Because I, and I know John Lennon was on Monday Night Football before. I, I've seen, you could yeah. pull it up on YouTube and you could watch uh, Howard interview John Lennon. Like, what do you think of the sport uh, football? It's like, well, this isn't the football that I'm used to, but uh, but I like it. You know, it's just him being John Lennon, two cultural '70s icons talking to each other. That was kind of cool. So, yeah. what what was the discussion? So, I guess Rune Arledge, who was the president of sports at, at ABC at the time. And by the way, that interview, that Monday, that interview where Howard Cosell interviewed John Lennon was in 1974. Um, So Rune Arledge said that he, it was a game between the Patriots and the Dolphins, and there was less than a minute to go in the fourth quarter. And the Patriots were, it was looking like they were going to win. And Rune Arledge called Frank Gifford and Howard Cosell and told them about the the shooting and suggested that they should be the ones to, to talk about it. And Howard Cosell was apprehensive first, but he, he because he thought that the game should take precedence. And he also felt it wasn't their place to break such a big story. And it was Frank Gifford who convinced him otherwise. And because the significance of the event was greater than the finish of the game. And so I watched it or I, I read a transcript started with 30 seconds left in the fourth quarter right after they had been informed. And it just, you know, that's such a, so I, I thought about that, you know, going back and forth. And I, I get that, you know, these are sportscasters, but this is the significance of the event outweighs their, who they are. 
Yeah. And they have this information and it's important, but could they give it the, the, the gravitas, the gravitas that it deserved? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Usually they would, uh, they would have the news. It, it wouldn't be their decision. That's kind of interesting because usually it was the network would break in and there would right. be the anchor. I mean, I'm sure they did that with the Kennedy assassination. They probably broke into the, the middle of whatever was going on. To what announce. was going on when Walter Cronkite was, it was Walter Cronkite that was on. Yeah, that was in the afternoon. So I'm sure there was soap yeah. operas or something, you know, on the network. Actually, NBC did break into its East Coast feed of the best of Carson. And it was in the, it was in the middle of a Johnny Carson piece. It's funny, though, that it's always attributed to ABC, Howard Corsell, and maybe because it was so unique, like that's what the nation was tuned into was uh, yeah. was Monday Night Football. So it was up to Howard Corsell to, to break this story. Yeah. It's crazy. That is a, that is a heavy weight. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And we were fortunate enough during our podcast episodes this year to, to talk with Mark Goodman and uh, kind of discuss what, uh, what happened uh, at that time. I will never, ever forget that night. Yeah, I was on, I was doing 10 to 2 on WPLJ in New York. And it was Jim Morrison's birthday. And we always did uh, a little block of music on, on an artist's birthday. So I was in the middle. Uh, actually, the, the, I was towards the end of the block. And it happened that the first notice I got, which was callers calling me saying, you know, uh, Howard Cosell on ABC Football just made a mention that John Lennon had been shot. That was the first I heard from callers. Mm. And I'm in the middle of playing The Doors, The End. And a long song. That's a lot, yeah. To, to WABC, to, to their the newsroom and say, what's going on? And literally it was coming across the wire that John Lennon, they didn't even report yet that he had died, just that he was coming, he had been shot. And literally within 15 minutes, the report came across that he was dead and, um, you know, we just went into, into playing Beatles music. And I, um, I was probably the second time uh, and last time that I cried on the air. Um, it was, you know, <laughs> what are you going to say? Just a right. shocking moment that you never expect. And, um, and by the next night I had, I had gotten angry. Mm -hmm. um, that this this could happen but um yeah we just went into into beatles music and i was living right next door to the dakota oh man the dakota um i lived at 15 west and the dakota was was one west but mm -hmm. it's literally mm -hmm. i could look down into lennon's apartment from my apartment i'd never seen him in the neighborhood or anything but that was so i get off the air at 2 a.m and I have to go home to that. And there's, you know, a thousand people out front, flowers piled up in front of the Dakota and police had blocked off the street. You know, they weren't letting you on the street unless you lived there. And, and I was pleased, despite what local, other local radio stations said, I was pleased that they were listening. The people there were blasting PLJ. Yeah. Um, we had the bigger ratings. Yeah. Of <laughs> course. Still, NEW had day. the rep, but we had the ratings. <laughs> well, that's the power of radio uh, mm -hmm. at the time. That's everyone tuned into, especially in something like that. You, you immediately turn on the radio to, to get uh, all the latest and to kind of commiserate mm -hmm. with everybody. All right. So we're talking John Lennon and we're going to take a break right now.
Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our tribute and acknowledgement of the anniversary of John Lennon's assassination. Bob Gruen is the famed rock photographer and also the author of a new memoir, Right Place, Right Time, but also a good friend of the Lennons. I mean, you took some family photos and then you, you were entrusted in 1980 to kind of, you were at the record plant and you recorded like all this, it was secret, this, uh, this double fantasy record. Oh yeah, when they were in the studio in the summer, it was a total secret. Um, they didn't know where they were going with it, and they didn't want any inter- interruptions, or they certainly didn't want any press about it. Uh, they wanted to be able to work without the distractions. But uh, but you, I, I remember you, I saw Yoko in June, and she said, uh, "You know, be ready for us to call you in July, but I can't tell you what it is until I call you." <laughs> did it surprise you? Like, you know, what you did got? They were back in the studio. No, it didn't surprise me. Um, the whole world was waiting for them, but um, I had actually gotten a postcard from John. It's in my John Lennon book, uh, also out on Abrams, John Lennon, the New York years, uh, where he sent the postcard during the time he was raising Sean. And uh, on the front is a picture of two people in a newspaper who are dead. And on the back was a picture of a bright sun and just a self-portrait of him and Yoko and Sean. And it just seemed like people in the news, you know, was a negative idea. And he and Yoko and Sean were in the bright sunshine of life. And that was a time when people say, where is John Lennon and why isn't he working? And that postcard really sums up why he wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it's prophetically true, because when he did come back, well, we all know what happened. Yeah. You know, this is 40 years ago. Um, do, mm-hmm. Where where were you at the, the time? Um, well, I actually did- saw John and Yoko in the studio, uh, around December 6th or December 5th. And we were up all night, Friday night until Saturday morning, uh, actually Thursday night and Friday night. Uh, and I took some pictures of them on the sidewalk in front of the record plant on 44th street, Saturday morning. And John said, I'll see you later. And I was home in my dark room Monday night, developing those pictures, uh, trying to finish up in a rush because I was actually supposed to see them that night and show them the pictures before I went to the village voice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I got the phone call that he had been shot. And, of course, at first I thought shot doesn't mean dead. And then a friend of mine called up and said he heard on the TV that John was dead. And that was about the worst, most permanent thing I ever heard in my life. Because mm. um, there's no way you can fix that. No way you can make that better. And um, and since then, you know, uh, it's a, such a, you know, such a sad ending to such a great story. But I try to think about the 40 years that we did have and that all the art and music that we got from John Lennon. And, uh, you know, he did an interview in November, the month before he died, with David Sheff from Playboy magazine, which is a very extensive interview. And he talks about how he was feeling and what he learned while he, in the five years while he was raising Sean. And he learned about a healthy diet. He learned, actually, unusually for John Leonard, he learned about delayed gratification. He learned about the responsibility and the joy that comes from taking care of your family. And he talks about all of that in the Playboy interview, and I'm bringing it up because that's going to be republished uh, next month, I believe. Mm. And if people want to know about John Lennon, they can hear it from John Lennon in the Playboy interview rather than hearing other people talk about him. Of course, if you want to see John Lennon, my book, John Lennon and the New York Years, has some great pictures in it. <laughs> uh, and there are a lot of good stories in my new book, my autobiography here. You, well, you, you portrayed that shift nicely. You, t- you talked about him uh, discovering the macro, macrobiotic diet and, and uh, other healthy lifestyle choices like you're talking about. You did talk about it in the book a little bit. 
Well, it's very important. He went from being a drunk rock star in the beginning to being a responsible parent mm. uh, by the end. You know, um, it was a real transformation, a real learning process. It was very lovely the way you portrayed the, the friendship and, and getting to know them and the family. Really well, enjoyed thanks. that. Yeah, and you're you're still close with with Yoko and Sean and, and yes, all, the am. whole. Yeah, so yeah. that's wonderful. And we also are talking with uh, Tim English, who was kind of like us, but a little bit older and was in college at the time. And so he's going to tell his story of what went on at the time when he was in college. He's got a book out. Uh, it's called John Lennon 1980 Playlist, which is is kind of a cool premise for the book. He researched the music that John Lennon was listening to in 1980, and he documents it for us. And it's very, it was very interesting to see. And it, it kind of gives you a, a little window into John Lennon's musical preferences, which was really nice. Where were you in 1980, on December 8th, 1980? I was in a dorm room in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, watching Monday Night Football. And I was one of the worst nights of my life, uh, just devastated because you heard Howard Cosell come on and deliver the news. And, you know, sometimes when they do these things, they say, well, he's been taken to the hospital and maybe he's going to pull through. And like, I believe that was the case with Michael Jackson. They said they'd taken him to the hospital. But in this case, Cosell just said, that's it. He's DOA at the hospital, you know. So it was just a heartbreaking, devastating uh, thing, uh, I think, for everybody who was around, but especially if you were uh, a Beatles fan and a Lennon fan like I was. Yeah, it's, um, it's amazing that that's the same story for, for most Beatle fans. I mean, they, everyone discovered in the U.S., everyone discovered the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Like everyone was watching Ed Sullivan. It seems like everyone was at the time, 1980, all of America watches Monday Night Football. And that's really how everyone heard the, so the story. Absolutely. And one of the things I tried to do in the book is provide a little background on the world of 1980. And you know, it was a different world in a lot of ways, it's some, some ways similar. But as far as communication went, I mean, you know, you mentioned two things. The Beatles on Ed Sullivan, 64, where 75 million people watch. You know, the only TV show that gets that audience today is the Super Bowl. I mean, there's no... You couldn't replicate that even if you wanted to. It's just too much media and too many different options. Likewise, 1980, I mean, I don't know. I, we didn't, where I was, we didn't have cable until a year or two later. If you wanted to, you were watching TV, looking for entertainment uh, on Monday night, you had five or six choices, one of which was Monday night football. So, yeah, I mean, it was just a very different uh, if you wanted to hear a song that you loved at that time, you had to turn on the radio to go out and buy it or turn on the radio and hope that they might play it at some time. So, you know, for the younger readers, especially, I tried to show, you know, how different it was back then. It's a long time ago now. Yeah. You did. I felt like you really did a good job in this book by bringing together history, history in general, music history and John Lennon history. So I think you did good, create good uh, perspective for younger readers. Thank you. Well, it all goes together, doesn't it? I mean, what's going on in the world affects the music that's taking place and sometimes vice versa. So uh, you really have to have a little bit of understanding of both, I think, to, to really grasp what's going on in either of them. So you, um, you were in a dorm room. You hear this, this news. That, like, I, I would imagine that all college could suddenly just congregate into one certain area. The, the guys I happened to be roommates with were more 
Southern rock type of guys, I might say. <laughs> Whenever I hear a Marshall Tucker huh. album, it takes me right back because uh, I was just bombarded with Marshall Tucker and uh, Charlie Daniels Band and the Allman Brothers. So they were they weren't they weren't uh, they weren't impacted by the terrible news quite the way I was. So uh, that's yeah, not the story did. I expected to hear. Yeah. yeah well, hey, <laughs> <laughs> what school? What college did you go to? Providence College in Rhode Island. I remember the next day uh, watching the news and they, I think it was Frank Reynolds on ABC at that time. And he talked about John's assassination for like five minutes. And then it was on to the Middle East and Russia. And this is like, wait a minute, you know, what was going to go on after this? How can that be? You know, it just seemed like such a cataclysmic event at the time. And, uh, and, you know, it was a great loss. And I think we still feel it. I mean, uh, all these years later, at least I do. Yeah. Did you own Double Fantasy when the when did the album come, the album came out in November? Yeah, it came out November seventeenth. And um, no, the answer to your question is no. I had heard a couple of songs on the radio, and uh, I remember hearing Start, "Starting Over," which was a single that came out in October. And I also remember hearing "Woman" on the radio. And you know, it was part of the thing was it was just great to have him back. I mean, as I point out in the book, it was so unusual for an artist of John's caliber to just take five years off. It just wasn't done at that time. Uh, you know, typically John and everybody else would put out about an album a year. Um, and the album, you know, it was a very short window there where people could listen to the album and it not and not listen to it in light of what had happened to John. Um, so I never really had that opportunity. I only heard it, you know, in the wake of his death. And of course, all the songs sort of take on that the fact, you know, that they you sort of relate them to that in some way. I mean, the irony of doing a song like uh, Starting Over. Uh, as I point out in the book, uh, it came out later, but the song Living on Borrowed Time recorded that for the Doubles Fantasy Sessions. And you know, here he's recording a song called Living on Borrowed Time, and he's got four months to live. So, you know, there there were certain songs that sort of foreshadowed this kind of eerie. Yeah, we're making lots of associations afterwards. I have to ask, what was the impetus for the book? You have to write a book that you're really turned on by the subject. Uh, the books I write are all, you know, fact-checking and digging out facts. And it would be the worst job in the world if you weren't really turned on by the subject. So that makes it fun. But, uh, you know, it's not really work if it seems like fun. And, you know, John has had so much written about him uh, that trying to find a new way into this uh, topic, into this life, was a challenge, I think, for any writer. But I thought it was really cool if you, you sort of place yourself in his shoes and listen to what he was listening to. And as I got further into the research, I realized that some of this music actually impacted some of the crucial decisions he made that year, uh, particularly the decisions to go back to the recording studio, uh, the decision to uh, ever just, I could never figure out why he was back in the recording studio just a week or two after Double Fantasy had come out. And I kind of reveal that in the book, which I don't think many Beatle fans are aware of. I'll tell you guys, it was, uh, he had, he, he found out that uh, a DJ at the Peppermint Lounge in Midtown Manhattan, the really hip club of the day, was playing Yoko's song, double fantasy song, Kiss, Kiss, Kiss. And John was just thrilled with this news. He said, wow, isn't that cool? He said, there, she's finally getting the acceptance that I think she's, she's deserved all these years. We need to put out a record specifically aimed at the disc. 
And that was the impetus for him to go back in the studio and work on a track, Walking on Thin Ice, which had originally been recorded back during the summer. So John goes in and he overdubs some really cool guitar over that, you know, really adventurous work uh, in the week before he was killed. Um, so, you know, I kind of use the songs in some ways as a jumping off point to make, uh, put out some new information for people or hopefully give an insight or two into what made John tick. Also, as you mentioned in the book, you know, the B-52s were already kind of honoring Yoko Ono with, with, their, with Rock Lobster. It has definite Yoko Ono overtones yeah. in there. John ticked up on that right away. It's amazing. that, And it was absolutely true. Kate Pearson and the B-52s were people that had picked up on Yoko's prior work earlier in the 70s. And that sort of scream that Kate Pearson does in uh, in Rock Lobster is right out of Yoko's work. And John hears that immediately. And he was thrilled with that. He said, wow, the world is finally catching up to what Yoko and I were doing with the Plastic Ono Band 10 years prior. And uh, he said, now's our time. Now we got to get back in the studio. It's funny, though, because that song had been around for a while. The B-52s actually performed it on uh, Saturday Night Live in January of 1980. But uh, John really became aware of it in June 1980. And right away, he calls up Yoko and says, let's think about getting back to the studio. Get out the axe, get out the car. And sure enough, he gets back to New York at the end of July. And by the first week of August, he's in the studio recording Double Fantasy. You painted a good a picture also of things that he might have been feeling during all this time. And while he's, you know, listening to this music, insecurities, which nobody really thinks about, and support of other artists, of his fellow Beatles, and also of Yoko. We know he was complex, but you painted a, a pretty complex picture of him, which was really, you know, nice to see. Yeah, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't pretend that I uh, have any uh, inside knowledge, but I do delve into what other people have said and what he said at the time about what he was going through. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, he's certainly a complex guy. Uh, when he did his demos down in Bermuda for the songs that were, became part of Double Fantasy and Milk and Honey, um, he had all the secrecy around it when he presented them to his producer, Jack Douglas. It was like a Mission Impossible thing where he put them on a seaplane out of Manhattan, pulled them out to Long Island and said, any, any word of this gets out at all, the project's off. He even told that to the musicians at the beginning. And why was that? Well, Jack Douglas said that he was afraid that he didn't have it anymore. This is John Lennon we're talking about, right. but he was very insecure and thought, you know, he'd been away for a long time. I mean, that was, a, you know, that was maybe, I don't know how, what to compare it to. I mean, like going away for a decade or more now, maybe, yeah. uh, but uh, five long years. And he, we didn't know if the public was going to accept him or especially if he still had his muse, so to speak, you know, his creative spark. And Jack Douglas was amazed at that because he thought all the songs were great. And a lot of them were, and, uh, you know, uh, but yeah, you're right. He was insecure, which is, I guess, is part of being an artist and being creative. Yeah. That you're never quite sure if you're, you know, maybe making a fool of yourself or being a genius or maybe there's a thin line. I, I don't know. But uh, he, but for somebody like John Lennon to be insecure, what hope is there for the rest, for the rest of us? <laughs> yes, a beetle. I'd say it's also true of his last uh, live performance at Madison Square Garden with Elton John. He didn't want to jump up on stage. He didn't know how he was going to be received. Um, and I think he lost a bet. I think Elton John uh, and John Lennon made a bet about uh, 
oh, whatever gets you through the night. If that made it to number yeah. one, he said he would he would jump up on stage. And he um, I believe the story was, I mean, he he did not want to go up on stage because he wasn't sure, like, what's, you know, how, how, do, how am I perceived he got, he now? He said he got sick before that, uh, you know, that's how nervous he was about going up on stage. John did very few public appearances. I mean, he never did a concert for money after leaving the Beatles, you know, everything he did was either, well, a one-off like that, or he played with Zappa at, uh, at the Fillmore East or charity things. That was not his last appearance because he did something at one of the New York hotels the following spring uh, for Sir Lou Grade, uh, but that was his last one where you had paying customers, yeah, with Elton John. And uh, it's interesting, I, I didn't know until Elton John wrote his book last year, he actually met up again with John in 1980 after the uh, Elton Central Park concert in September, which was a huge deal, hundreds of thousands of people. And he actually sang John's Imagine that day. And he revealed in his book something I don't think anybody ever knew before, that he actually got together with John and Yoko for a brief period at a party after that, uh, after that show in Central Park in September. That time between 75 and 80, it's, it's, uh, it's like a little almost a black hole. Obviously he made some appearances and, uh, you know, he was still out and about on occasion, but, uh, for the most part, nobody really knows, you know, he was being, he was just, no, he was just a no dad. There were him from that time at, so at, the, at the time, right. you know, you could be, off, he was literally off the grid, which is, you know, yeah. for that time, it's crazy. Yeah. But he was like, in, in, in he, he was, and he wasn't because, uh, he was traveling at that time. He went to Egypt. He went to Japan every summer, from uh, in those years, uh, the last time being in 1979. Uh, he went to Hong Kong. Uh, David Bowie ups up a lot in my book. Uh, he yeah. hung out with John in Hong Kong in 1977. You can find a picture of that online. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody, I don't think anybody knew that at the time. But, um, you know, as I show in the book, he didn't exactly renounce all of his uh rock star like (laughs) he didn't become a choir boy in 1975 when he became a dad again uh as bowie uh tells it uh they were hanging out in hong kong going to strip clubs and getting drunk at night um and other you know kind of bad boy type of uh things so uh he was still having his fun a cool story i found that uh mark mother's ball of devo this was 1977 before devo had a record deal john what's up They've just done their show at the Maxis Kansas City Club downtown New York. And uh, a drunken John Lennon sticks his head in the car that Mark Mothersbaugh is sitting in after the show. He's singing Devo's song, uh, Uncontrollable Urge, to him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. He picked up on the yeah, yeah thing. was sort of a Beatles tribute. And actually, the beginning of that song, if you listen to it, it's not similar to uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand, the guitars. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he was, in one of his interviews, he said, no, we never went to a movie or show or anything, you know. Carol King, in her memoir, said that she was at the taxi driver, of all things, uh, screening uh, with him. And then they later got together uh, after that, mm. but, uh, so he was, you know, he was just, like you said, off the grid sort of, but he was, he was not, you know, he was still out doing things. But yeah, as you mentioned in the book, he's paying close attention to his, uh, his peers and what's, what they're putting out. And, um, I was kind of curious that was the, I mean, Paul McCartney, his, uh, Paul McCartney too, was like a real experimental album. And so I, I was kind of interesting what, uh, what Lennon's take uh, was on a, an album like that. 
now we're getting Paul McCartney three after, right. after 40 years. <laughs> right. So it's amazing. A lot of the artists, a lot of those contemporaries of his are still around, you know, and still doing their thing. Coming up by Paul McCartney, a uh, big hit in 1980, that was an important song to John by two separate accounts of people who happened to be driving in a car with him that spring. When that song came on the radio, John was really taken with it. He really liked the song. And um, he, uh, he, if you listen to the first song John recorded, uh, well, one of the first uh, songs he wrote when he got to Bermuda, a song called uh, I Don't Want to Face It, it's very similar musically and actually lyrically to Coming Up. You know, they both have that same sort of uh, guitar sound, and they both ask the question, you say you're looking for this, you say you want to do that, you know? It's almost like an answer song mm -hmm. uh, to Coming Up. Unlike uh, in, in the UK, the studio version of Coming Up was the number one hit. In, in, in the US, it was the live in Glasgow version, if you remember, that became the number one right. hit. John preferred the studio yeah. version. He called it the freaky deaky version. <laughs> and, uh, Robert Hilburn of the LA Times uh, asked him in an interview in October, he said, uh, were you surprised that Paul did a song so that he's doing such good work? And John said something really touching. He said, how? He said, how can you be surprised by your brother? Mm. Yeah. You know, somebody you know so well, it doesn't surprise me that he's doing great work. You talked a little bit about his initial reaction to Queen and then his kind of becoming a, you know, becoming a fan. What was the turning point for John, which in your estimation? Well, really, of the songs that really had an impact on John, uh, Queen's crazy little thing called Love uh, would be one of them. Because he hears that song, it was the number one hit in March or February uh, in the U.S., John hears it, and uh, he hears him doing Elvis Presley. Mm -hmm. It's kind of an unclean-like song, kind of a throwback to the 50s rock ability. A great song that Freddie Mercury wrote in 10 or 15 yeah. minutes, supposedly, on his guitar. <laughs> but uh, John picked up on that, and he said, you know, maybe it's my time again. You know, if stuff like they're getting back <laughs> into doing that Elvis thing, maybe it's my time to come back again. And, of course, if you listen to Starting Over, he's basically, yeah. one of his session guys said, he's basically doing Elvis on that song, you know, all that, you know, sort of tongue-in-cheek, but sort of not. I mean, he, he just loved all that music. But that song, Crazy Little Thing Called Love, along with Rock Lobster, along with Coming Up, really one of the key songs that in, in John's life in 1980 in that it influenced him to maybe it's time to get back into making music. Okay, so that was a pretty good F. What do you think, Holly? Oh, it was it was really great to talk about John Lennon. Very heartwarming, depressing, any adjective you can come up with. But it was it was an enjoyable episode, and and those were I, I really enjoyed talking to those guys. Yeah, I wouldn't even say depressing. It's just uh, it's wonderful that we got to experience John Lennon and his music and his life. We have some people to share those memories with us, and of, you know, and there's always the music. We think positively about that, and you know, and and that's how that's our takeaway. It's, and that we get to share our memories of John Lennon with our children, with the next generation. Exactly. It's always nice to to hear everybody's uh, perspective on, on uh, a topic that we all love. Yeah, definitely. And and thank you to our listeners. Thanks for listening to What Difference Does It Make podcast. Yes, please follow us. We're on Facebook at What Difference Does It Make podcast. Instagram and Twitter at WDDIM podcast. And you can also check out some behind the scenes stuff on our YouTube page. Just search for What Difference Does It Make? Um, also, uh, we have a monthly newsletter, uh, WDDIMpodcast.com. So please sign up for that. 
And check us out on uh, check us out on our social media sites because we are going to have some giveaways in the month of December. Well, that sounds exciting. <laughs> All right. Also, I should uh, remind everyone that we have a Spotify playlist of Lennon 1980. This is all the music that he was influenced by to help him during the recording of Double Fantasy. Tim English put this together, and so we kind of we slapped all these songs on there, and it's, it's quite a varied list. Spotify will have a link for it on our website, WDDIMpodcast.com. So thank you again for listening, and until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.